Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, brought to you by Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, the broadcast about timely and important legal issues affecting the insurance industry. I'm John Zuba, editor of Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Joining me is Brendan Noonan from our communications team. We're pleased to have with us today attorneys Daniel Santanello and Ray Alvarez from the law firm of Lux, Santanello, Petrillo & Jones in Florida. Daniel is the managing partner and is a Florida board certified civil trial specialist with 21 years of trial litigation experience. He serves as the co-litigation director of the firm's complex and high-exposure trial team, and he's the director of the Florida Defense Lawyers Association and authored the FDLA white paper on Medicare liens and set-asides. The firm has seven offices statewide in Florida. Dan practices in the firm's West Palm Beach office. Ray Alvarez is the managing attorney for the Medicare lien negotiation set-aside and workers' compensation department of the firm. He has more than 10 years' experience in preparing medical cost projections, Medicare set-asides, and conditional payment lien negotiations with CMS. Ray is a member of the Florida Defense Lawyers Association and co-authored the white paper with Dan. He practices in the firm's Miami office. Our topic today is Medicare compliance and general liability settlements, and Brendan Noonan is going to lead off today with our first question. Uh, Dan, what are some of the challenges of entering a liability settlement today? Hi, Brendan. Yeah, well, to answer that question, I want to give you a quick background on Medicare and liability settlements. As you know, Medicare was enacted in 1965, and it was expanded for citizens receiving Social Security disability in 1972. In 1980, uh, Medicare started to require workers' compensation recipients to use workers' comp as the primary payer for medical bills, and Medicare was intended to be the secondary payer. Now, recently in 2007, Section 111 was enacted, and the idea was to require in liability civil cases and settlements to require liability insurers to become the primary payer and Medicare to become the secondary payer. The problem we're seeing now and the challenges we're seeing now with respect to settlements in the liability arena is that plaintiff attorneys and uh, injured parties have had difficulty becoming educated to these new requirements under Section 111. And the major dilemma in that regard is that there are $1,000 a day penalties that can be imposed on insurers as well as plaintiffs for failing to report settlements and for failing to comply with Section 111 under the Medicare Secondary Payer Act. So our biggest problem right now, Brendan, is getting attorneys to agree to comply with these requirements. Uh, Dan, we'll continue. Why are we concerned with Medicare and general liability settlements? Well, with the enactment of Section 111 in 2007, Medicare basically took a position that they did not want to pay for medical care and treatment for persons that were either on Medicare or Medicare eligible. And they wanted insurance companies that were settling cases and group health insurance plans to become the primary payers on those cases. Now, with the penalty, statutory penalties that can now be imposed on these types of cases, we've run into a situation where settlements have to be reported as well as resolved during the settlement process. Now, there's two aspects that are important in a liability settlement. One is to report the settlement to Medicare. If it isn't reported, we are facing serious fines, that being the plaintiff as well as the insurance company. But the other major dilemma that we're 
dealing with now is whether or not set-asides need to be done in settlement cases. A Medicare set-aside is basically what it sounds like, taking a portion of the settlement, setting it aside so that as the plaintiff incurs future medical care and treatment, they will use that money from the settlement and not look toward Medicare to pay for that treatment. Uh, Ray, what systems and tools has Medicare implemented that have given it the ability to start enforcing the Medicare Secondary Payer Act in liability settlements? Well, Dan has kind of touched on that already. It's Section 111. Section 111 is basically a reporting tool that Medicare has established to assist them in the identification of cases that involve Medicare beneficiaries. So in a nutshell, insurance companies have to report any and all open cases that involve a Medicare beneficiary. Now, Medicare is gathering very specific information about these cases, everything from the body parts, question to the extent of the medical treatment, to the amount of the settlement. Insurance companies will have to also report A&R closed cases. Now, by virtue of this mandatory reporting, Medicare is going to have, for the first time in their history, detailed information on every single open liability claim that involves a Medicare beneficiary. And even more important, they're going to have information about every settled claim and the settlement amount. Now, as I said earlier, Section 111 is only for injured parties that are Medicare beneficiary. So as a result, Section 111 mandatory reporting is only going to impact a small percentage of cases. Now, as Dan alluded to earlier, having an unreported claim does expose the insurance company, the plaintiff's attorney, and any and all parties to a penalty of up $1,000 per day per case. So the penalty is pretty severe and can add up really quickly. For example, failure to report 10 cases just for two days equates to a fine of approximately $20,000. Now, in order to determine the Medicare status of the injured parties so that the insurance companies can report proper cases, Medicare has established what's called a query tool that allows an insurance company to inquire about an injured person's Medicare status. Now, this tool... It's not mandatory, but I recommend that it be utilized to its maximum, which right now is one time per month. So in order to avoid penalties, it's recommended that the Medicare status be checked regularly. Now, I also recommend another safety net, which is to submit an SSA 3288 to the local Social Security office. This is basically a Social Security form that is executed by the injured party that allows Social Security to release Social Security, and Medicare information to the requesting party. Hey, uh, Ray, when are Medicare set-asides necessary to protect against future Medicare payments? First off, Medicare set-asides are not mandatory. That's a tool that was established back in 2001 by the workers' compensation folks. It's a tool that Medicare has accepted to determine the amount of future Medicare-covered medical needs. However, it is not a requirement. Now, CMS has established uh, review thresholds in order to review settlements in the workers' compensation world. Right now, they have two tier levels. One is any and all settlements of $25,000 or more that involves a Medicare beneficiary. And the other review threshold is any settlement of $250,000 or higher for a settlement that involves an individual that has a reasonable expectation of becoming a Medicare beneficiary within 30 months. Now, there are certain things that Medicare has indicated falls under, quote-unquote, reasonable expectation. 
uh, individual who has applied for Social Security disability benefits, an individual who has been denied Social Security disability benefits but anticipates appealing that decision, an individual who is 62 and a half years old, an individual who has end-stage renal disease. These are all, yes, some of the criteria that Medicare has accepted and has indicated is a reasonable expectation. Now, these review thresholds are only for workload control only. Medicare has indicated that under the Medicare secondary payer provisions, and I quote, Medicare is always secondary to workers' compensation and other insurance companies, other insurance such as no-fault and liability insurance. Accordingly, all beneficiary and claimants must consider and protect Medicare's interest when selling any workers' compensation case, even if the review thresholds are not met. Medicare's interest must always be considered. So as a result, any case that falls underneath those tiers does not really require or, or warrant a Medicare set-aside. However, the closer you get to those two tier levels, the more of a need for a formal Medicare set-aside. Basically, what needs to be done is a risk analysis in workers' compensation. And Dan, what are some practice pointers on how a defendant or its insurance company counsel can deal with these issues when litigating or trying to settle a significant case? That's a good question, John, and there's two things to remember. The first and most important is to deal with the past lien. Section 111 requires that that Medicare lien be resolved if Medicare has paid out anything for treatment on a plaintiff that receives a liability settlement. In fact, the Code of Federal Regulations, Section 411, specifically states that if the lien isn't resolved, the insurance company or the company that settled the case can pay it again. So it's critical. It's not only fines, but it could result in paying twice on a settlement if you don't resolve the lien. The second part is what to do in terms of Medicare set-asides. Ray had just spoken about the use of set-asides being required or utilized in the workers' comp arena. However, on the liability arena, which are your everyday settlements that occur from personal injuries, there are no guidelines presently or requirements. Medicare has basically left us in the dark as to how to handle these cases. The federal statute says we should consider Medicare's interest when we settle the case. So, for example, John, if you've got a settlement, the severely injured person who's not on Medicare yet or who is on Medicare, but they received a million-dollar settlement, um, we all know that after the documents are signed, that person will probably treat in the future. Do you have to set aside part of that settlement? Well, the question's unknown at this point. We do know that half the states are reviewing set-asides on an arbitrary basis, and in the other half are not reviewing it. So how do you protect yourself? The best practice pointers I can give a client or an attorney or a company that is engaging in a settlement case, and even a plaintiff, is in a settlement that exceeds the workers' comp thresholds, which are 25000 if they're age 65 or older or already on Medicare, or over 250000 if they have a reasonable expectation to become a Medicare beneficiary. The best advice I can give everybody is to take some portion of that settlement, set it aside, attempt to submit a set-aside to Medicare, and if they don't approve it, at least you have documentation that you attempted to comply with the statute and take their interest into consideration. The alternative is what we're beginning to see. Medicare may deny benefits to a Medicare beneficiary 
that had a large settlement because, as we mentioned earlier in this presentation, Medicare will now be aware of every single settlement that occurs in the United States with respect to somebody who is a Medicare beneficiary. So uh, we've, we've seen some cases where Medicare has sued plaintiff attorneys for failing to comply with these lien issues. So that's the best practice tip I can give everybody is that is that everybody should get on the same page. Everybody should try to set aside some portion of the settlement for future medical expenses as they are incurred. But the problem is that most people don't want to take a settlement and save a portion of it for future medical care. And so you have to make it a condition of settlement that this be evaluated and that this be concluded, and that's the only way that clients as well as attorneys can uh, protect themselves against a lawsuit by Medicare in the future. Uh, Ray, how can defense counsel and clients reduce or eliminate conditional payment exposure? Well, before we start, a conditional payment is defined as a Medicare payment for services for which another payer is responsible. In a nutshell, Medicare is making a payment for an individual who is on Medicare, either by age or disability. So the overall majority of settlements are not going to be affected by conditional payments since they only affect settlements that have Medicare beneficiaries. That being said, there are several ways in which conditional payments can be reduced or even eliminated. The first and easiest way to reduce or eliminate conditional payments is by trying to show that the injured party's condition is not the responsibility of the primary payer or that some or all of the alleged conditional payments are not related to the plaintiff's injuries. This is basically accomplished by a thorough review of the medical records and through legal argument. And what you do is you write up on a letter, you attach your documentation establishing that the conditional payments are not related, and you send everything to Medicare. Upon receipt, Medicare will review the argument and the documentation, and if they agree that some or all of the conditional payments are not related, then they will adjust the demand accordingly. Another way of reducing conditional payments is through a compromise in which Medicare agrees to reduce the conditional payments for a hardship, financial hardship. This is a difficult task, but if the conditional payment eats up a good chunk of the settlement and the injured party has really no other financial means, Medicare may reduce or even eliminate in its entirety the conditional payment amount. Another way, probably the easiest way to reduce conditional payments is through procurement costs. Pursuant to uh, 42 CFR 411.37, Medicare will reduce its recovery to take account of the cost of procuring judgment or settlement. Now, yet another way to reduce or eliminate conditional payments is through 42 CFR 411.28, which basically reads that Medicare may waive recovery in whole or in part if the probability of recovery or the amount involved does not warrant pursuit of this claim. Now, this particular reduction tool is hardly ever accepted by Medicare as they are trying to basically get every single dollar they can. Now, once there is a settlement, Medicare is going to issue a formal recovery demand letter. This formal letter basically starts what's called the 60-day clock. Medicare is allowed to charge interest if the conditional payments are not paid back within 60 days. Uh, Medicare also can bring suit for double damages of Medicare's claim against the liability insurance carrier, the self-insured defendant, the employer, or any entity which receives proceeds from a settlement. 
So it's highly recommended that prompt payment be made to Medicare to avoid any interest charges or unnecessary litigation with Medicare. Basically, once you make payment, you continue with the negotiation, and once a determination is made, if Medicare determines that some or all of the conditional payments were inaccurate, they will reimburse the difference. So basically, in order to maximize the ability to reduce or eliminate conditional payments, the process should begin once it is known that an individual is a Medicare beneficiary, not once a case is settled or after a case is settled. The attempts to reduce or eliminate conditional payments should start the moment it is found out that an individual is a Medicare beneficiary. And Section 111 helps because with their new query system, they're going to let you know who is on Medicare or not early on in the process. Okay, great. Thanks so much for joining us today, Dan and Ray. Thank you for having me. Thank you. That was Daniel Santanello and Ray Alvarez from the law firm of Lux, Santanello, Petrillo, and Jones in Florida. Special thanks to Brendan Noonan from our communications team and to our producer, Brian Cohen. And thank you all for joining us for the Insurance Law Podcast. To subscribe to this audio program, visit podcast.insuranceattorneysearch.com or go to online directories such as iTunes or Google or Yahoo's podcast directory. If you have any suggestions for your future topic regarding an insurance law case or issue, please email us at lawpodcast.ambest.com. I'm John Zuba, joined by Brendan Noonan, and now this message. Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is used by decision makers at insurance companies responsible for selecting legal counsel and representation. The printed directory is distributed annually to insurance companies, non-insurance companies, third-party administrators, and corporate counsel around the world, and the online edition is accessible throughout the year. Your listing in Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is the most effective way to ensure that thousands of potential clients have access to your outstanding credentials. Here's why you should be listed in the number one insurance insurance attorney reference. Your firm's credentials will be listed in our comprehensive reference guide, which is made available to thousands of insurance professionals globally, both in print and online. AMBEST listees are recognized as the most qualified in their field to represent the unique needs of insurance companies. Key decision makers rely on the directory to take the guesswork out of their selection process. They know that only the best are listed, those firms with a proven track record of excellence who are recommended by their insurance industry clients. And remember, one low rate guarantees year-long visibility for your firm. We invite you to use our web application process to apply for a listing today. With our reasonable rates and broad exposure, there's no more effective way to get the attention of the insurance industry. For more information about Best's Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys, visit www.insuranceattorneysearch.com. 